Welcome again to another edition of Vision of Zion. The date today is Saturday, April 22nd, 2023. Sean White and I had nothing better to do than to do another podcast. <laughs> How you doing, Sean? <laughs> Good. All right. We're going to continue talking about the book of Isaiah. We're going to try and get this completely done. And then again, as I mentioned before, we'll eventually put it out in a chronological or sequential order, rather. And we've, I've got some notes in front of me based on uh, Sean White's uh, review of various translations of the book of Isaiah. And we're going to be reading from the translation provided by Abraham Gileadi on IsaiahExplained.com. Shall we just begin with me reading the head note and going on through these verses, Sean? That's great. Okay. So Isaiah 6 is the story of Isaiah's purification parallels the servant story of becoming purified to fulfill his mission so this is the one then sean where uh isaiah uh, goes through a purification process with the hot coal i believe correct yes okay i'll confess i didn't review this chapter before today uh normally i do and i try and make some notes myself but i have read this before and i'm familiar with this chapter but we'll let uh, sean fill us in on his uh understanding so first verse in the year of king Isaiah's death i saw my lord seated on the throne highly exalted the skirt of his robe filling the sanctuary king Isaiah was one of the good kings of judah the prophets Isaiah, isaiah amos and jonah jonah lived during king isaiah's reign as long as Isaiah made a point to seek god god made him prosperous we can see these examples in Second Chronicles uh, 26, verse 5. Later in Isaiah's life, after Zechariah died, Uzziah made some mistakes. In this verse, Isaiah is taken back to see God sitting on his throne in his sanctuary, a temple in heaven. The righteous are assembled and appear as a skirt stretching out over the earth. So in this scene, uh, I've seen this before that as the angels come forth to sit in the courts of heaven and so forth, that they seem to, when they gather, it almost, it's a, like a white skirt coming up, the light coming up and going with them to assemble to hear God's word and go back to their duties. And uh, it's very interesting. Is that because they're, their they're, robes are white, and so when they're gathered, it looks like a big ripple of clothing, like a skirt? Yes, they have white robes or white clothing, and as they're coming up, words, and they're coming up with speed of light from the earth to assemble, it looks like this draping skirt coming over the earth with the speed of light. They're traveling back at once to assemble, and so it creates this appearance of a skirt. I see. Okay. I've drawn some parallels to our day to kind of help us start to think more about how is this happening you know, who could King Uzziah be in our day? So just as an arbitrary thing, November 30th, 2018, George H.W. Bush, the 44th president of the United States, died from Parkinson's disease at his home in Houston. He was a good man, fearing God in the beginning, and then he definitely made some mistakes toward the end. And so we could kind of see this coming out for us at this time. 
So to think about that, go back to the Old Testament, we see that the Lord really didn't want them to have a king. But because it was popular, because it was, for whatever reason, the Israelites wanted a king. And God said, okay, you want a king? I'll let you have a king. And we see this repeatedly where the kings began good. I can think the whole string of them. Saul, David, Solomon. Those are just the first three, I believe. And they all had a problem at the end. And what happens is it leads to corruption for the people. It's almost like the people will project their own sins and uh, and excuse it by having a, an imperfect king. Uh, we saw this in the Book of Mormon, right? King Noah, the one that, that Abinadi appeared in front of, same thing, uh, became corrupt, uh, put a court of priests around him to who were basically yes-men to reinforce his views. He taxed the people heavily, built lots of great buildings. Boy, this really sounds familiar. Anyway, all this money got spent and... Uh, the wickedness was reinforced. So these monarchy-type governments or one rule or rule of a few uh, can completely corrupt people and get, takes away the people's own personal accountability, it seems to me. We kind of you know, blame the king for our own uh, weaknesses, like we can't help ourselves. And it almost like just, we almost used to justify what we do. And then you see... Uh, a wonderful thing happened with between King Benjamin and King Mosiah, where Mosiah is like, man, if you could have a righteous king every time, it would be fantastic. Why? Because checks and balances in the government, right? When you separate legislative from the executive, from the judicial, it's a slow process. But our founding fathers knew that the only way to keep it keep it in operation long for a long period of time is to have these checks and balances. So it's very inefficient, which can sometimes slow down the wickedness, slow down the process of uh, combining those powers together. And we can uh, we can see since uh, the George H. W. Bush there that we have disintegrated, and then through different presidencies and stuff, they've made actions and things which have made them likened to a king. We had a short reversal with. President Trump, I believe, because of the righteousness of this nation to take things back. But once again, now our Congress is ineffective and cannot do anything. And laws are made by executive orders, which is total kingship again. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a flavor of uh, kingship when you uh, when the executive order privilege is abused and overused. It's interesting that there's websites that will show you how many executive orders each president of the United States has issued and what they were. And it's a very powerful tool that's been used repeatedly uh, in this country. And the hard part of it is that once a decision is made, and I, there are some constraints on what they're allowed to talk about, but you know, it takes two thirds, I think, of Congress to overturn an executive order. So it's an incredible amount of power of the pen that the president wields with the ability to write those executive orders. And it very it much is very close to uh, having, a, you know, a king. And so I think that's a great, uh, great point about a modern example in our country. And so, you know, King King Mosiah was able to set it up a chief judges uh, with checks, some checks and balances. And we slowly, slowly, slowly are forgetting the lessons of the past. We're forgetting why we rebelled 
against England and this type of system. And we're slowly seeing very strange things happening on the world front where we are giving over more and more power to non-governmental organizations. Some people are elect- almost unelected officials, uh, exactly. Yeah. And they also enjoy what? Complete immunity. Right. Uh, I was hearing about and reading about the World Health Organization or WHO, who was calling for major reforms. Uh, there was a speaker in British Parliament who spoke about this. They finally had enough petitions to have a, uh, a debate about this issue. And he was pointing out the language of how if they're going to dictate one size fits all for vaccinations, for certain health protocols. And this, this, these decisions are being made by unelected officials who live in a country where they have complete immunity and anybody who comes under them also has immunity and they're taking money to support them from industry, from big pharma, from other sources. And this unification of government power with private industry, it's like the military industrial complex of night of the speech by Eisenhower in 1961, I believe, we're seeing this in other ways uh, encroaching, not just military industrial, but these other sectors, now the health sector. So, it's been, and I'm sure there are many more collusive types of entities where those who have the big companies have the money to get people elected, put their money to persuade and kind of wind up being the neck that controls the head, which is the government. The who is actually the most funding comes from the United States, then it comes from England, and third is Bill Gates. And then the, there's just fractional little small parts after that, but it's interesting to see who's funding it and why they're pushing it. I was watching a piece today about, it's a piece, you ought to watch it. Uh, those who haven't seen it, it's called Leaving California. It's a piece put out by, or published yesterday uh, in, uh, on the website Epoch Times. And it's uh, talking about the power of the teacher's association or the union in California, which consists of 350,000 members, all of whom pay $1,000 a year. So 350,000, add three zeros onto that, $350 million they have to influence elections, policy, and they have an extremely powerful, and seven out of 10 of the people that, who they back with their money win elections. So this just shows you if one group gets involved or their nose under the tent, they can really uh, control things. And that really isn't a lot of money in the grand scheme of things when you've got a $128 billion education system and they're able to use a third of a billion to control so many decisions in California. Yeah, very, very powerful what money can do. Well, that was verse one. (laughs) I'll try and not, not offer so much commentary about the next few verses. We'll get through this. It says, Seraph stood by him overhead, each having six wings, and two they could veil their presence, with two conceal their location, and with two fly about. Interesting. These seraphs, I know, have been misunderstood by many, but they are really translated beings. Instead of dying, these individuals chose to stay on the earth and serve until Christ returns. We can see examples in, of course, Moses, John the Revelator, 
and Alma, among many others, are examples of seraphs. The wings represent the gifts they are given to do God's work while on the earth. It's kind of hard to imagine for some to give up their life when it's so hard here and to live you know, another 4,000 years, another 6,000 years till Christ returns. But these individuals are so devoted to building up the kingdom of God and loving us that they would give up everything to work for God the rest of their lives in this capacity. It's very this, unique. This might be a surprise to people that uh, Moses was translated, meaning that he didn't taste of death because in the Bible, or one of the accounts says Moses died. Uh, John the Revelator, we have a little hint when Peter uh, is asking about his his uh, future, and this is in the Bible. He says, "If I, you know, if John decides to live or lives, what is that to you? I mean, you're going to have what you want, and John's going to have what he wants." Alma uh, walked off, and we don't know specifically what happened. We have three Nephites, though, and we also have what Elijah, right? Sean, Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot, chariot of fire, so he didn't taste of death. So, we and have then we have the entire city of Enoch and the city of Melchizedek, city of Salem, there of Melchizedek's led. So we have a force up there of these individuals, an army, a small army, if you will, for God, that we often forget about. Well, a lot of these events have been downplayed. The ones in the Bible have been downplayed. Uh, if you go look for a talk called, What Did King Josiah Reform?, given at BYU by a Methodist preacher slash scholar named Margaret Barker, she will explain that a lot of the fantastic stories in the Bible that used to be there have been removed. And it was removed during that period when Josiah got a hold of the scriptures and they they brought them back to life, as I recall. They were, they were buried and hidden for hundreds of years. They found them again, but a lot of things got cut out. And one of the things she does with the Dead Sea Scrolls is she shows there were lots of fantastic events that occurred, like Enoch, who was barely mentioned in the Bible, but it does say Enoch was not, or, or and Zion was fled, I think. So we have little hints, but through additional scriptures and revelation, and part of the restored gospel is to flesh out these topics, that there were miraculous events like that happening. And there are a number of translated beings, so it's really interesting what their powers are. Uh, the power to uh, very, very interesting. They could veil their presence, which means what? They can hide their identity, I assume. Well, they can be invisible and standing around us and helping us and not even know it. And yet they can choose to open that up and to be visible to us. I've got many accounts of friends and even myself of the three Nephites visiting us and protecting our lives or helping us at different times. And when they choose to appear, they can. And when they choose to hide, they can. You know, so these gifts of these six wings are so special. If you want to find a concrete example of that, we look no further than uh, in the early days of the church, uh, a plowed field. I think it was Mark, uh, David Whitmer had to be somewhere, uh, but he couldn't get there because he knew he had a field to plow, woke up the next day, and the field was plowed, all done. And uh, someone came and did it during the night. Had well, to be you, someone like this. Had to be. Well, you remember the story that your uh, friend in that old ward told you about his great-grandfather was the bodyguard, and his yes. stand down. 
Yes, or John, was, the revelator spoke to him. That's correct. Dale Stout told me the story. He was in the hospital, had a procedure done. My wife went and I went and visited him. You know, I always find that it's a little bit of active service. So always pays such major oh, rewards, unexpected rewards. And he told us that story, talked about how it was his grandfather, which is kind of crazy. I'm going to go off on a tangent here, if that's okay. <laughs> so Del Stout tells me a story about his grandfather. How could his, grand, his grandfather was a bodyguard to Joseph Smith? And this is only five or six years ago I was told this story by uh, Brother Stout, who just passed away recently. So how did he, how is his grandfather? I mean, I have to go back to my great, 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 great grandfather, I think, to get back to Joseph Smith's time in the 1840s. But he had it because his his grandfather, excuse me, his father was the last born of his father, who was the last born, each had like 15 or 16 children. And so because he was the last born of the last born uh, for two generations, it was literally his grandfather who was the bodyguard to Joseph Smith. And it's in a book I have called, I think it's called Remembering Joseph. So I, I can actually, because I found a written account after he told us the account orally while visiting him. But this oral history he gave us was that uh, he was a bodyguard. He's walking with Joseph. They're walking through the woods on a path or road. And a man comes out of, out onto the road and starts to talk to Joseph. And the bodyguard, I uh, can't remember uh, Brother Stout's dad's, for our grandfather's first name. I'll have to go look it up. But he was, uh, he held back and he didn't, he wasn't with jo- Joseph directly. He was just back a few yards, quite a few yards. And the two men spoke and he didn't hear what they said. After the man left, he felt really bad because he realized, man, I should have been up there with Joseph uh, protecting him. For some reason, he had felt to hold back. So he went to Joseph and said, I'm sorry, I, did, I you know, neglected my duty. This guy comes out of nowhere and is talking to you and I wasn't there to protect you. And Joseph said to him, that's okay. That was John the ba- that was John the Revelator. Yeah, and right. and so that story wasn't told in the family for years. And then they heard the story, and then it got into a book. And Brother Stout knew the story well, but it's in the book. I myself have had many occasions, but one thing I'd like to bring up is that when these men are translated, their wives are also translated, and they serve with their wives. And we, like all women in the Bible, or even our Heavenly Mother, it's so sacred that um, they're hardly ever spoken of. But I've had others speak of miraculous things happening when they called upon God and broken heart and a contrite spirit that they couldn't do anything more for themselves. And a man or a woman appeared and helped them through the situation. And uh, tractors falling on people, bad people on properties, um, you know, an airplane that crashed into a mountain and rescuers couldn't get there for 45 minutes. Somehow somebody lifted him out of the plane, put him by a tree. They've advertised it. Newspapers and everywhere else could not find this man. Wow. Well, there's a reason. Translated beings, uh, if it isn't, if it weren't important, we wouldn't see much about it, but we do see a lot about it. And one of the places I just want to refer to it real quickly as I turn to it. Uh, you have to wonder why Moroni spoke so much about translated beings, or maybe it was Mormon, when they were uh, reworking or recording some of the words that Jesus taught to the to the people. Um, if you go to 3528, you'll see that there is a long discussion about what a translated being is and the power 
and the abilities that it gave the three Nephites. And uh, Mormon, it is Mormon, sorry. Mormon was the one asking and praying about why, you know, why this was what it was. And I even think he said they ministered to him, if I remember. So that's almost yeah. 400 years later. Either in uh, Moroni or Mormon, they, you know, they're going through the battles and they're wounded and they are trying to escape because they're the last couple left for a little while. And they talk about the translated beings ministering unto them and helping them to get away and to heal and different things. So very, very special. Third Nephi 28, verse <clears throat> 25. Behold, I was about to write the names of those who were never to taste of death, but the Lord forbade. Therefore, I write them not, for they are hid from the world. But behold, I have seen them, and they have ministered unto me. And behold, they will be among the Gentiles, and the Gentiles shall know them not. They will also be among the Jews, and the Jews shall know them not. And it shall come to pass, when the Lord seeth fit in his wisdom, that they shall minister unto all the scattered tribes of Israel, and unto all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. Boy, they're going to be busy. And shall bring... Out of them unto Jesus many souls that their desires may be fulfilled, and also because of the convincing power of God which is in them. Yeah, so what do these men want? Why did the Lord grant them their wishes? I remember when he talked to the 12 disciples that were in the Americas, he said, what, what is your wish, wish when I leave? And nine of them said, we want to come to you as soon as we can, Lord. And he said, great, when you're about the age of 75 or 76, you're going to come to me. And then the other three were really embarrassed. Oh, gosh, we should have asked for that. No, I know you're what you're thinking. You want to stay on the earth, and you're going to have pain and sorrow, but you're going to be able to minister. And that's what they wanted. Ask if you can knock. In the New Testament, we often only think of John the Revelator, but when we go into a couple of verses there, he's talking to the apostles directly. He said, several of them, not just one, but several, will not taste of death and stay with us, but we don't know who all those were at that time. But it's so special to see these little traces or tidbits here and there. So it goes on to say, and and these are key, you know, you like to focus in on key words, Sean. Here's some key words here. Therefore, great and marvelous works shall be wrought by them before the great and coming day when all people must surely stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Yea, even among the Gentiles shall be a great and marvelous work wrought by them before the judgment day. We talk about the um, the restoration of the gospel in the 1820s and 30s uh, being this great and marvelous work. Uh, LeGrand Richards wrote a book using that, those words, a marvelous work and a wonder. But in reality, there's a great and marvelous work that's going to happen, the work of the Father, described by Jesus in 3521, and these beings are directly involved. Makes total sense, doesn't it? They're directly involved. Uh, in preparing people for the gospel and for the involvement of the remnants of Israel, including the 10 tribes. So we are in for a lot of good stuff. I don't want to extend it here, but I do feel prompted to share a couple, just a few brief stories here. I was kicked in the head so hard over and over again with steel-toed boot that I left my body and uh, two of my brothers dragged me up onto a porch and uh, Jeremiah put me back in my body at that point, and I just brought the two together. And then I was in the hospital one time and uh, was having a terrible, terrible time and uh, very, very depressed and been in the padded room for 
uh, four days at that point, and a nurse opened the door, which had never happened before, and cracked the door and just said a few words and got me to talk. And she talked to me throughout the entire night. And they let me out into the other part, took me out of the padded room at that point, and I went to try to find her and to thank her. And um, no ex nurses existed like that. And uh, they could not find her name on the registry or anything. I says, no, she has to be here. She was just with me all night. I says, no, that's, we don't have a record of her. And nobody here works with blonde hair that's like that. And I just knew. Well, I was told them that whispered to me that that was Jeremiah's wife. And so, anyway. They probably said to you, boy, Sean, back to the padded room. <laughs> <laughs> I was so sober and just so, I mean, just, just, I didn't want to say anything. I was just been with heavenly beings and I felt so much peace and my life had completely changed. It was a turning, another turning point. So I wonder if we opened up the phones or allowed people to talk about this, how many people would attest that they have been ministered to by strangers. There were, I know that's not your only story either. Yeah, that just because I don't want to, we could make a whole session of stories. <laughs> but I, so many people have come up to me and I guess felt trusted with me to be able to tell their story and to feel it. And I had the spirit whisper to me and verify that those things were true. Well, they're there to appear unto people of sound faith who have specific things to be accomplished. They have eons of knowledge to impart. And they've yeah. seen the earth evolve. They've seen things evolve. I, there's actually a story about maybe one of them being present during the uh, declar the, the during that period when they were going to sign the Declaration of Independence. I've heard a story about someone involved that uh, gave them courage to push forward. I believe that. Uh, I'll have to flick for that account, but there is one. Yeah. All right. Verse two. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get on to verse three. They called out to one another and said, Most holy is Jehovah of hosts. The consummation of all the earth is his glory. And here we don't often use consummation very often, but it means joining together of two parties, spiritually and physically, like a marriage. Now in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says one called out to another, and they were calling each other and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. So that kind of gives us another view of what this verse means. Of that the whole earth is really his glory. All of us people here, he's glorying in us, coming together and becoming like him. Jehovah of hosts, I'm going to go into this just a little bit here. Is a, The Hebrew word for host is, I'll butcher this, tasah. T-S-A-B-A-H. Saba, maybe? Yeah. And translated into Greek, it means Sabbath. So the name Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word armies or host. So here we can surmise that Jehovah of host leads the heavenly armies. Jehovah of host, his glory and pride, the whole purpose in life is to bring back the children of God back to Elohim's presence. The term yeah. holy, holy, holy must be the equal and opposite of woe, woe, woe be unto you, right? Yeah. 
Let's really? Go ver- <laughs> Let's go to verse uh, verse four. <clears throat> the threshold shook its foundation at the sound of those who called, and a mist filled the temple. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, when God calls out and hears his voice, we know from the Book of Mormon and other things that it shook the whole earth, you know, so to speak, after his son died and reappeared in the Americas and so forth. And we can only imagine what that must have been felt like him, like uh, after the three days of darkness, to hear this penetrating voice that shook the whole earth. And now the t- temple being described here is in heaven. And when meetings are called, a loud trumpet is sounded and the angels gather. And it would appear like we were talking before as this skirt as a mist because until they've settled in their seats because of the whiteness and the pureness of it. And especially if you're Isaiah and you're standing there and your eyes are not completely adjusted to heaven and everything and the speed of what things are moving, it would appear like a mist of them settling into their seats. On to verse 5. Then I thought, woe is me. I have been struck dumb, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I have seen the king, Jehovah of hosts, with my own eyes. So we see, if we can imagine in our own minds, Isaiah is taken back to heaven, and he's standing there in the courts of heaven. He's Without words, he's struck dumb. He's, you know, so much awe of everything that's going on. And he thinks, you know, here I am among the world, among all these people that cuss and swear and do bad things. And why am I here in heaven? And um, it's just so stunned. I can't think of anybody who recorded their uh, seeing the Lord who came back and felt like, yeah, I, I was deserving of that. I was on the same level. Everybody is completely overwhelmed um, by the experience and feels unworthy. And really, we are unworthy. It's a it's by the grace of God that he interacts with man. I've traveled back myself several times, and it's always so humbling and so like I'm so small. But one of the measures by which they gauge a near-death experience is uh, how much it changed their life from before to after and what they're concerned about their worldly event, worldly things and stuff. They often less care about the world and more care about people and their whole focus in life changes, which is a good measure as to if they've really seen God or not. That is 100% consistent with every near-death, out-of-body experience that I've ever read. Everybody wanted to stay, except those who were either told they had a mission to fulfill or didn't want to leave loved ones, even though they were in such a better place. The fear of death was completely gone, and but they had a completely different focus when they came back to Earth every single time. I wanted to stay myself. I really did until they showed me what I wouldn't miss out on are the people that I could influence. And then in that last scene, I was on my knees begging the Savior to send me back. I have to go back. It just 
to bring hope, faith, and courage to all that I knew. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphs flew to me carrying an ember, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Touching it to my mouth, he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your sins are taken away. Your transgressions atoned for. Before you comment on that, I just want to say, notice how there was this acknowledgement of humility and being unclean before he was forgiven. So in the first verse, verse five, he's like, I am, I'm unclean. I need God's grace. You know, I am not worthy of this. And then the angel came or the seraph came and took away his sins. Please go right ahead. Yeah. It's just so typical of feeling unworthy to fulfill your mission, but to be sanctified, to take all away from him that was ungodly or unpure and building up the kingdom of God and to be purified. And this symbolized by the seraph bringing that ember from the altar and placing it upon his lips. We can think of this like baptism and cleansing him before he receives an anointing a priesthood power to fulfill his mission. Keep in the back of your mind here that this is the pattern the servant who will serve in this day will also follow. And, uh, you know, and we want, we're trying through all of this to identify the servant and to identify who to listen to because there'll be a time when God announces him and we don't want to be left behind or be mistaken. But as we see these traits and stuff, we will be able to identify. Yeah. I've always felt like the ember on his mouth and the cleansing was was uh, metaphorically done, or I guess metaphorically, maybe it was uh, in the spirit, it was done exactly that way. But I've always felt that that was done that way, as opposed to, let's say, being put in the water, because he's speaking the words of the Lord. He's a prophet who's being called to speak the words, and therefore he has to have you know, the words that come out have to be clean, clean and pure. Uh, I did have one question for you, which is, why did this happen now as opposed to at the beginning of the book of Isaiah? I would have thought it would, Isaiah 1, uh, while he's writing, that's when the Lord cleanses him, but it doesn't happen until chapter 6. Well, it's because there's such a growth process, and... Uh... It happens with all prophets or with all that are called to serve God. Uh, you know, in our earthly body, we're just not pure, and it takes a while to awaken to the state or the purpose of us over years and time and stuff. And then, then when you have passed certain tests and everything, be taken back in this way. And you're right, Craig, it is symbolic because I've seen things happen there. There's a large pool, a large fountain in which people are washed before they're anointed to their callings and oil placed upon their head and a blessing sealed upon them in this fashion. So you're right, it is symbolic. Okay, let's go to verse 8. <clears throat> then I heard the voice of my Lord saying, I like, he says my Lord, now it's his Lord. Now that he's been cleansed, the Lord owns him. Maybe there's something there. My Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I replied, here am I, send me, exclamation point. And this is Isaiah speaking back to the Lord. And uh, it's so interesting. I think that a lot many of us that decide to return to earth 
our once we see our mission and see the importance of us coming back, we're like, you know, your whole mindset and everything changes, and we're willing to go back to this torturous body and everything. And um, it's just so interesting the whole shift of mindset. I'm ready to go. Let me. I I can see the way now. <laughs> and the other thing about that is that it's voluntary. There's no there's no compulsion here. This no. is the same exact wording the Savior used as we read in, uh, I believe it's uh, Abraham chapter 3 of the Pearl of Great Price, Whom shall I send? And the Savior volunteered, Here am I, send me. And uh, and same thing in the book of Moses, another account, uh, I will go down, I will I will be the Savior for this earth, for the world, for the maybe for the universe even, according to some accounts, I will, I will atone. And the voluntariness of it uh, strikes me, but I love what you just said about now that they've gotten the vision, they willingly go back and fulfill. It's really something. Verse, verses 9 and 10. And he said, go and say this. He, so now he's getting his mission. I'll go. What do you want me to do? And now the Lord's giving him his assignment, right? And he said, go and say to this people, go on hearing, but not understanding. Go on seeing, but not perceiving. Make the heart of those people, these people grow fat. Dull their ears and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Understand with their heart and repent and be healed. Wow. Why would he? Uh, this one always baffles me. Why after that he's being called, I guess, to call to repentance. Why this, Sean? I think it's slightly uh, misworded here, just a little bit. And what I'm seeing happening is he's saying, Isaiah, go down to this people. They hear, but they do not understand. I mean, so many of us have heard Isaiah how many times, and now we're reading it, and we begin to understand it in a totally different way. I can't tell you how many times I've read Isaiah and not understood it until I went through verse by verse and tried to compare it to my near-death experience and try to figure out, piece it together with the last days and what I'd seen. And so we've gone on even as a people listening to our prophets, and yet we go home and we can't remember the, what they said the next day almost. <laughs> and then we don't do what they say, and we just go back to conference going, I wonder what he's going to tell us new, but we can't even do what they asked us yeah, in the last one. That's true. So he's saying, go on and preach to these people and just keep talking and talking until they repent, until their ears grow fat, until their eye, they dull their ears and shut their eyes. You know, he's just saying, and do not stop. You know, I believe that's actually in the next verse. Okay, so I see what you're saying. You're saying that he needed to preach until they wouldn't listen anymore. He right. needed to preach until they couldn't see anymore. He needed to, you know, try and feed their hearts until they wouldn't take anything. In other words, preach, preach, preach until the fullness of their wickedness occurs. Because let's face it, this is a has a application today. I love the fact you brought that in. Well, let's go back to 750 BC before the country Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians. He's trying to prevent them from becoming captive. He's being called, as the Lord so mercifully does, to call these prophets who get ignored, sometimes stoned and killed. He's trying to reach out to them. Don't let this happen because, but 
you know, they did. They were taken captive because they didn't heed the words of Isaiah and maybe other prophets. So I love that. And I love the fact that you brought it to modern day too, because uh, how much truth can we handle? Um, yeah. We're going to be in the same boat. We're going to get to a point where as many of us are just not going to listen. We're going to turn it off. And we're already doing it. We're already, uh, I'm sure we're muzzling some of the things that the Lord would love to have his prophet seers and revelators on the earth today uh, share with us, but they're not able to, or they're trying to, and it's just not penetrating. And I one, one example real quick is President Nelson's talks. Uh, one person pointed out once, they're full of footnotes. He says something, if you want the deeper meaning, go to the footnotes because he's referencing really deep stuff on those footnotes. You know, I see this as the same pattern that I remember in the pre-existence. You know, we everything built up and built up, and we preached and preached and did everything we could do, and finally there was a standoff in which, like we're going to see in the next verse here, but we preached and preached and talked to everybody that would hear, and there was a point where no more good could be done, no more could be brought back, and that's when the ruin started to happen. Just like... Just like in Jacob chapter 5, the parable of the vineyard, quoted by Jacob, given by Zenus, where the Lord's ready to burn the vineyard, but the servant says, spare it one more time. And the Lord says, I will. It's what I want to do. So now get together who you can. And the numbers were few, and they pruned, they digged, they replanted the grafted the branches of from the natural tree from the ones they'd scattered and brought them back. And there was a great, there was a great harvest. So, and is, but then, and when that was done, it was done. And that's when they brought the fruit in and then the burning began. Well, this is also interesting because like in 2021, when I had put a coil in my lung and I'd passed back and forth across the veil a few times as they had to restart my heart and things and put this coil in to stop bleeding. I'd lost more than 50% of the blood in my body. And uh, the Savior took me back and was looking over the earth and everything, and he had a basket of apples there. And he was washing these apples and sorting them. And he says, these are you people down here, Sean. I'm looking for the brightest, shiniest apples. You are the apples. He says, I'm looking for people that will go out and talk to their neighbor that they haven't talked to for years. They'll smile and say something to somebody on the line that they're not afraid of talking to other people. I know he says, you guys are also ready to go back and duke it out in Washington, take over your government or whatever. But I, that's not what I want. I want to find people to be my last servants that are ready to talk to their neighbor, that are ready to share their hope in Jesus so special well that's 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 very profound and i keep thinking about uh i i i can't remember which account it is now i'm trying to remember which account it is it might have been you it might have been some it was someone else they said that uh when they went and did one little act uh that was what the lord was looking for i'll give you an example i've got a friend um, fell on some financial hard times, but he's been able now to get back on his feet financially. And he told me the story. I don't want to use his name or anything because 
I want to lose the blessings. But he saw a woman in front of him who was at the cash register and kids are running around and she's trying to buy things. And the person at the cash register says, uh, your card's not going through. And, uh, and my friend was right in front of her. And he just said to the cashier, he said, just run my card. I'll take care of it. And she's all distracted. And so he leaves and he kind of goes around the corner to see what happens. And, and the woman at the, the cashier says, this has already been paid for. She's like, what? He said, yeah, this man in front of you already paid for it. And he said he had so much joy watching her leave, being able to afford what she'd come to buy and not knowing who he who he was or what he did. And he said, I've had a chance to do that several times now. Since that happened, I keep having people put in front of me and I have that opportunity. And I, I think about those little acts and how much happiness he creates and how the Lord pointed out to someone who had an NDE, that's the kind of stuff I'm looking for. You know, these little acts. I think you mentioned talking to somebody and lifting their spirits. Uh, I was a woman you talked to, I think, one time. That's where the story triggered. And then the Savior pointed that out to you, correct? Yeah, when I was 14 and was taken back and I had experience at the judgment table where they were reviewing my life, there was a scene there where I had turned to a woman in a Safeway store and I could see she was having trouble with her kids and she was just very sad. And I don't know quite what I said to her, but it cheered her up. And I had totally forgotten about that until that life review. And that was one of the highlights of my life review that that and I, it shocked me because it wasn't something that I thought was big or, or anything. Now, my wife and I, Carol, since 2014, have purchased polished rocks. And we have gotten these little baggies with a little business card, and we slide it in there as a gratitude rock and how a gratitude rock can help. We've also made necklaces and bracelets, and we have passed them out. And uh, it's so interesting. It's, you know, Carol will approach waitresses or different things at places we're at or in store and just feel prompted to give them something. And they it changes their whole day. They say, you know, you, did, you don't know what this means to me. I'm having such a bad day. I'll remember this and I'll think about giving gratitude when I feel this rock in my pocket. I did it with welders many a time and people that had been in and out of jail and everything. And it so changed their lives. They, I would walk up to their booth where they're welding and stuff and they go, they touch their pocket, say, it's in my pocket, Sean. And I'm so grateful my kids got on the bus safely today. But they, you know, after years of not seeing them, they still had the rock with them and could still <laughs> find gratitude. And that little thing of finding gratitude, when you are thinking positive that way, it solves so many problems. But it's such a small thing to do, you know. Small are, on our part. There are habits and things I've done just based <clears throat> on a very small interaction with someone, you know, that becomes ingrained. It's very true. Uh, small acts can give people a whole new direction. We should be more aware of that. And I'm, I'm glad you're pointing that out. Well, let's go to verse 11 real quick. And I replied, for how long, Lord? I'm sure he's saying, how long do I keep preaching? As their hearing gets duller, as their sight is being taken away, as their hearts are growing fat, as they're dulling their ears and shutting their eyes, how long am I supposed to do this, O Lord? Right? Is that what he's asking? Exactly. And he said, until the cities lie desolate and without inhabitant, 
the houses without a man, and the land ravaged to ruin. Wow. And this is exactly. I mean, we've gone through these terrible chapters, like in other ones where we see destruction and things come upon the people as God's hand is taken away. And he's just saying, you know, preach until there's no more to preach to. Preach until you're actually going to these ruined cities and pulling people out. You know, I've seen these cities like Chicago going into them myself in the Walk with Savior, and it's just burned and destroyed. And there's very few people on the streets. And me and a couple others are going through there and grabbing those that still believe in God and taking them to safety. There's and still people. Yeah. And those ruins that we're helping. So let's go to a verse from Doctrine and Covenants, section 18, one of the many, many places that you can feel the prophetic mantle on this young prophet, Joseph Smith. This is in the year 1829. He's 25 years old, coming up with these things, okay? If you think he's just coming up with it. Here's what he says, starting in verse 10. Remember the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. For behold, the Lord our Redeemer suffered death in the flesh, wherefore he suffered the pain of all men, that all men might repent and come unto him. Skipping down a little bit. And how great is his joy in the soul that repenteth. Repentance. And he says, you're, you're being called to call people to repentance. And if it so be, verse 15, that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this people and bring save it be one soul unto me, how great will be shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my father. And now, if Job will be great with one soul that you have brought unto me in the kingdom of my father, how great will be your joy if you should bring many souls unto me. So special. So special. <clears throat> so let's close with the last two verses of Isaiah 6, verses 12 and 13. For Jehovah will drive men away, and great shall be the exodus from the centers of the land. And while yet a tenth of the people remain in it, of the people, did you add that, Sean? No. Uh, or, oh, okay. Or return, they shall be burned. But like the terebinth or the oak when it is felled, whose stump remains alive, so shall the holy offspring be what is left standing. So as we saw in the last chapter, uh, woe unto those that live house to house and wall to wall. And that's what they're trying to do to us is to bring us in away from the country and to leave the countryside open for them to run like a government type farm and things and get us all together where we're easier to control. But he's saying we're still going in there and we're pulling away people that are still that put God first in their lives and have lived a godly life and have, you know, trusting God and we're going to pull them back into the safety and things of these inner valleys that I've seen. And uh, I, don't, I planted posts way back when. I mean, we could use an example of a cottonwood tree here back when the Teton Dam broke and I was helping grandfather and we were planting post and all that was available at the time was cottonwood trees. We'd cut them up and use them as posts. Well, gosh, in a couple of weeks, they were growing branches out of it just it was so unbelievable there was still this life within them and he's seeing that here that there is still righteousness even though the cities may be burned and everything so like in the scene where i in chicago um we're pulling people out and pulling them back to safety that we're pulling these little sprouts of righteousness 
so this really is a complimentary these are complementary verses to the former verse which is i want you to preach until there's nothing left because even then when the cities are burning you're still going to be able to find among the stumps some life and and offspring that are worth saving mm. is that right yes that's exactly right wow he well, just Sean, doesn't want to leave anybody behind. <laughs> Sean, thank you. Uh, you've really uh, brought a lot of meaning for me in Isaiah chapter 6, especially my confusion about uh, verse uh, 9 and 10 when I could understand what, what was being said there. Now it's very clear to me the Lord is saying, preach until there's nothing left. No, everyone's left, as the Lord likes to say, without excuse. And no one can say they didn't have the opportunity as the wine press, you know, pushes down yeah. to extract, you know, the juice from the apples or the juice from the grapes and the good apples. The most precious part. We're still going to have these opportunities to uh, repent and to, as we said yesterday, the Lord's arm is stretched out still and uh it's such a lovely thing and how much uh i'd rather get out of the wine press early <laughs> you know, before the squeeze is on yeah uh, but maybe uh some of us are going to take longer but sometimes uh as we know from the scriptures some are kept from the truth why because they don't know where to find it right but if exactly. you start with jesus christ i oh. can't tell you how many stories i've heard lately um as we uh, not to get too far off topic, as we grapple with the large number of people now, especially among women, who are having transgender issues, um, we see that in this struggle, uh, and those who have crossed over to be transgender, who have had physical body changes made or taken uh, hormone supplements, it's interesting, and not just that category, but even people who uh, lived uh, in the world in Babylon, uh, whether they're a video disc jockey who I listened to or others. Uh, one thing that changed them and changed their thinking, every single one of them found Christ. And yeah. suddenly whatever influence, whatever, I heard a great phrase yesterday, whatever social contagion is afflicting them or influencing them, that isn't lifted until they find Christ. And then suddenly it's clear and they're out there trying to warn people. And I want to be clear about this. This is some people's mission. Some yeah. people's mission is to be deceived and to <clears throat> go down that road and to then come back from the brink and say, don't do it. I did this and I regret it. And here's why. But I, they didn't get centered until the Savior Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit converged upon them, and then they saw clearly, and they speak with great compassion and articulate. Art, I can't say the word articulateness to tell tell people. And I see this, of course. I may have mentioned this before. When you talk about people who run uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Yeah. Who who's the best? Or if it's a pornography addiction, who is the best person? to talk about how to, you know, avoid those things. It's people who have been down that rat hole and have uh, suffered 
and have scraped and crawled back. Their missions are just as valid and maybe, not maybe, they probably even knew before they came down that they would be put into these positions, some by choice, some by circumstance, and then they crawl back and they find Christ. Even people who worship the devil, who think that they have no value or have been uh, you know, persuaded to join uh, paganistic or cultish types of practices. These people can be awoken wake awakened and they can uh come back to christ and preach these powerful testimonies which gives hope to a person that would only listen to that kind of a person wouldn't listen to a person who walked the straight and narrow their whole life had never had those kind of temptations or fallen into those kinds of transgression <clears throat> one last thing paul look at paul a zealous persecutor of of the religious of the christians <clears throat> look at alma the younger and the four sons of Messiah, all of them, their joy and their ability to convert was equal and opposite to the destruction that they had wrought among the people of of the church and outside the church. How many of us, to, <clears throat> excuse me, how many of us today would be willing to accept Alma as our prophet after seeing what he did? How many of us today would accept Paul as an apostle? after what he did and everything. That's where I think we need to work to open our hearts and be accepting of all this and be accepting of those that want to turn around and have open hearts. Yeah, one of the uh, things that really bother me uh, that I people say, well, you commit a sin, you know, it's like putting a nail on the board, but you pull the nail out, the hole's still there. No, no, the, the, hole, the hole ain't there anymore. It's not there, it's gone. There is no residual with full repentance. And the Lord makes it a better board, in fact. Uh, I don't agree with that view, and people shouldn't. Right. Uh, repentance is complete. And most of the people who, as the woman who was about to be stoned because she was caught in adultery, people, when they turn and change, their devotion and love is amplified uh, it's kind of like, uh, well, there's so many stories. I, there's the Savior and the woman that came in and washed his feet with, with her hair and her tears, and he compared his his invite invitees or the people who invited him, excuse me, the inviters. They compared, he compared them to her. Why does she have greater love? Because she was given greater uh, forgiveness and greater and and needed to be healed more than them, and so. The gratitude was amplified greatly. So right. anyway, <clears throat> at the same pace that we are seeing wickedness grow in this world and Satan is being given time to gather his own, uh, we're seeing an equal and opposite forces. Uh, exactly. And as you said to me earlier today, before we began the podcast, we need to start praying for divine intervention. Right. Uh, and maybe do it on collective days when we're all praying. Because as I read from um, Suzanne Freeman's book, Through the Window of Life, over there on my shelf, that's why I'm pointing over there, she said the angels are standing by, they're ready to help. We have to ask. We exactly. have to ask. Um, I, I'd call it boots on the ground. There's this whole plan that we're prepared for before we come. And 
there's the enactment of the plan. The Lord doesn't just come down and intervene. Very rarely does he intervene, in my opinion, on the earth, unless people on the ground are praying for it. It doesn't happen. It, it's like it's almost like you could probably uh, expound this, but it's almost like it's a eternal rule. No interference without divine or no divine intervention without requests. People blame God all the time. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Well, did you pray? Or did you just expect God to intervene without you making any effort whatsoever? And then when we do pray and it doesn't go the way we want, we want, um, you know, was the Lord's will done is the bigger question. You right. become bitter at God for not intervening when they're not even making any effort at all, or they make a late effort or might or they lack the faith to call down the powers of God. It's something we have to develop, but you have any closing thoughts on that? You know, uh, I've had so many of those experiences, especially we won't go make a whole story out of it, but I ran the knife through my left hand, cutting all eight tenons to all four fingers, and it took us five hours to get to the University of Utah. You can read the story in more detail in my book, True Connection on Amazon. But um, in that scene there, they hadn't deadened it or hadn't had any painkillers for over five hours. And then as they washed it out and were taking me up into surgery, the tears were just rolling down my eyes. There's so much pain. And I just said, in the going up the elevator, God, I can't take it anymore. And immediately my great-grandmother reached through the veil and held my hand. I took all the pain away. And then during the surgery, I was taught, and I was taught how that they are waiting, they are crying because they have assignments to us. And because we didn't ask, they couldn't help. There's so many times that we don't help and they are crying and mourning because they can't fulfill their assignment because we won't ask. It's crazy. Well, we need to start asking. If not now, uh, every minute that ticks by that we don't ask for divine intervention, um, it's going to become a steeper and steeper climb to get out of this Exactly. That's, that's going on. So let's all pray about that. And thank you, Sean, for pointing out that the little things matter. Uh, I know that I tend to become completely locked up and immobile when I see that I can't directly do anything in Washington or watch these crazy decisions being made. I know that I don't have, I'm not a politician. I'm not in those circles of influence. I feel like I am just a sheep having to take it. And um, so, but knowing that I can pray and ask the Lord to intervene and change the course of events. And if we do it collectively, I do believe, I believe it's probably always been the only option. And but it definitely is the only option today for many, many of us who see things going. And hopefully these podcasts will touch people to go, you know, I've got to think about this more. I've got to start praying for this. And that's Sorry, really the goal here is, you know, thy kingdom come, Lord. That's in the Lord's prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to pray for Zion to come. We need to pray, show the Lord we want it. And those tiny acts and and i love again just in closing we should adopt some of that attitude that the lord infused into isaiah you know you got to do it until the bitter end 
it's worth fighting for because you're going to save people. You're going to elevate people. Just even if you're a sinner, turn from your sin and you reach people that could never have been reached except through you. So um, little acts and uh, my daughter, I got to share something with you. My daughter's, my daughter said to my wife, um, I'll leave this in close. I promise this will be my last remark. (laughs) My daughter's serving a mission she's growing she's learning to deal with opposition and uh discouragement in amazing ways so mature for her age and she said i was in church last sunday and we were singing i believe in christ and the line when the script and the line in the song said i believe in christ so come what may she said but what i heard was bring it on (laughs) (laughs) those who love that youthful enthusiasm i mean bring it on yeah (laughs) that's right because that's the kind of strength we need to have bring it on because the powers that be with us are greater than the powers that be with them exactly thank you sean what a pleasure (laughs) did you want to add anything as we close no no okay folks we'll be back with isaiah 7 as soon as Sean gets done understanding all the verses, he's almost done. <laughs> so uh, we got that to look forward to. Thanks again, Sean. You bet. Thank you, Craig. This is Vision of Zion.